You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Good evening, everyone. The law of gravity hit Wall Street today and financial markets around the world, for that matter, as stock prices plunged even more than they did on Black Tuesday of 1929. When the dust settled, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had lost more than 508 points on volume of 604 million shares. That's nearly double the previous record. We have reports on the... Good evening, I'm Louis Lukaiser. This is Wall Street Week. Welcome back. Okay, let's start with what's really important tonight. It's just your money, not your life. Everybody who really loved you a week ago still loves you tonight. And that's a heck of a lot more important than the numbers on a brokerage statement. The robins will sing, the crocuses will bloom, babies will gurgle, and puppies will curl up in your lap and drift happily to sleep, even when the stock market goes temporarily insane. And now that that's all fully in perspective, let me say, ouch. Tonight, we're going to try to make sense out of mass hysteria, to look behind the crash of 87, and most perilous, but most important of all, to look ahead. Today marks the anniversary of one of the biggest stock market crashes in living memory. 30 years ago today, the Dow Jones lost 22% of its value in the most chaotic trading session since the Wall Street crash of 1929. When the closing bell rang, the Dow had shared 508 points, the biggest point drop and percentage drop in its history. What they saw was program selling taken to the ultimate art form as Wall Street's very biggest players stepped in and unloaded multi-billion dollar blocks of shares. After three decades, many of those who found themselves caught in the crossfire have long since retired, while for most people who've only read about that day in the history books, the events of October 19th, 1987 have become nothing more than one bad day in the markets. But the reality is much different. Black Monday was the culmination of a traumatic week on Wall Street, as the final stages of a five-year bull market collided head-on with levels of investor complacency which had reached the danger zone. The story of that week contains many invaluable lessons for investors, as well as some clear parallels to the current market environment, as complacency once again runs riot after a multi-year bull market. This week, on Adventures in Finance, the 1987 crash. Today is the 19th of October 2017 and welcome to episode 38 of Adventures in Finance. Uh, not to my right this week, but in another country in fact, is my trusty producer, James. James, how are you? 
Yeah, not too bad. Uh, I have to say it's a lot quieter in the office now that you are not to my left. Yes, well, this is uh, we're back to the good old days where I'm on the road and you're back at base camp. And uh, I have to say, I like it better this way. Yeah, I think I do too. I've been inundated this week with people trying to uh, retweet things to try and get your Twitter followers up. Uh, and I've been doing everything I can to help them. So how many are we up to this week? Yeah, apparently there is like a hashtag... Um, get AF James to beat TTNYGH. Well, there you go. You've got your own hashtag. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that that could be a thing. Um, but yes, I am at 155 followers. 155. That is awesome. But we've got a long way to go uh, to get you to that magic 150,000 level. How, how many do you have? I, <laughs> I have no idea. I genuinely don't know, I'm afraid. <laughs> I think it's more than 155, though. I'm, I'm quietly confident in saying that. Yeah, but look, yeah. hey, I, I hope I hope you beat me. I'm all for it. I'm backing you to the hilt, my friend. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Just make sure that it's the right at AIF James. At AIF James. Okay, yeah, yeah. I will not forget that. I just keep thinking of everybody. Now, before we get into the podcast proper, uh, a quick giveaway for you. Now, we've had a, um, a real drumbeat of concern from a lot of our contributors on Real Vision in the last few months. Uh, many of them seeing similarities to what we're going to talk about today, 1987 and uh, 2000 and 2007, where markets became extremely overvalued. Uh, we put together a video on this called Edge of the Cliff, which ran through a lot of their concerns. And we've curated a full chart pack, uh, which goes with the video. And you can download that chart pack if you head to realvision.com slash edge of the cliff. You'll find a bunch of charts there that really tell a fascinating story. So make sure you head to realvision.com slash edge of the cliff to download those. But... This week, we're not here to talk about chart packs. We wanted to take a look back at the events of exactly 30 years ago today, 19th of October, 1987. And to do that, we've enlisted a group of contributors who lived and breathed the 1987 crash from just about every angle. We're going to hear what happened on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, as well as behind the scenes from the inimitable Art Cashin, the director of floor services at the New York Stock Exchange for UBS, who was a governor on the floor of the exchange that day. And we're going to hear from Greg Weldon of Weldon Live, who had begun trading for his own account just weeks prior to the crash. David Hay, the CIO of Evergreen Gavcal in Bellevue, Washington, and Michael Lewitt, the author of The Credit Strategist, will offer their perspectives from the East and West Coasts. And Trader Vic, Victor Sperandio, explains what it was that caused him to call for the crash to occur just weeks before the event in what became a widely read Barron's article. We also hear from Michael Oliver of Momentum Structural Analysis, who in 1987 was a young futures trader trying to develop a system which would help him identify when the market was crash-prone, and Bill Fleckenstein of Fleckenstein Capital offers his memories of that fateful day. And finally, we're thrilled to be joined by Richard Pomboy, who back in the 1980s was a highly successful technology investor and hedge fund manager. Now retired, Richard shares his own incredible story of the 1987 crash that will make you believe in the power of premonition. We begin the story, though, not in October of 1987, but several years earlier in New York City at the Plaza Hotel. Here's Greg Weldon. You know, 87 really kind of began to evolve out of the Plaza Accord, which was September of 1985. But the day the Plaza Accord was announced was actually a Sunday night. I remember getting on the train in New Jersey to go to New York. I was working on a Florida Commodities Exchange in the gold pit at the time. Uh, And, you know, the Plaza Accord was announced. I just remember thinking how huge this was. And as it turned out, it was as huge as I anticipated it would. You know, we know that, you know, from that point, the dollar uh, into the basically the first half of 87 
uh, fell by almost 30%. It was a massive decline. Uh, it had a big impact in terms of kind of starting to stoke some inflation that came really in the stock market. And if you recall, the stock market had kind of started rallying back in 82 off the Reagan election and everything. And, you know, it was maybe part of the way through in, in, 80, in 85, but it really accelerated from there uh, after the Plaza Accord, too. That inflation ultimately spilled over and you had gold rallying as well. It was roughly, I think, around 340 when the Plaza Accord was announced. It actually peaked just after the stock market crash uh, above 500. So you had a big move in gold that was predicated on the decline of the dollar. And then finally, kind of to me, the kicker was you had energy prices start to rally. You had crude oil, uh, WTI, went from $9.75 to almost $23 leading up to uh, August of 1987. Uh, and that kind of started to push inflation. Inflation went from just below two to somewhere around four and a half in that time frame. And to me, the biggest thing leading into October of 87 really began in the spring of 87, and that was a massive plunge in bond prices. You had yields, uh, the 10-year, for example, was somewhere south of 7, went somewhere north of 10%. You had six to eight months of kind of lead time where the dollar continued to plunge, energy and gold were rallying, and bond yields were soaring. And the stock market was playing off the reflation angle but, you know, in the sense that from the 82 uh, beginning of that kind of bull phase, the stock market was already up like 240%. It had really gotten overheated. And the, the, the real debate became, at what point do the rise in bond yields choke the stock market? And uh, it peaked in August, uh, started to come off in September. But why did we see the weakness in the bond market and the dollar? Another man who remembers the lead up to Black Monday is Bill Fleckenstein of Fleckenstein Capital. He takes up the story. The dollar had been weak in uh, to start off 87, and the bond market was under pressure early on. The reasons for that appeared to be foreigners were a little afraid that the, the Fed, even though uh, um, Volcker was still there, was, quote-unquote, behind the curve. Um, it, this was, you know, late 86 was only two years after the big bond market back we had in 84, where there was this immense inflation fright that made no sense, given the fact that Volcker had pretty much broken the back of the inflation psychology. But people were so um, worried about what had, hap- what had come before, the old muscle memory, just like now they're not worried at all, that um, the bond market started backing up, and the dollar was weak for the pretty much the same reason. They thought the Fed was behind the curve, and therefore the dollar was going uh, to continue to weaken. And that was the pattern through the early part of the year, um, and the stock market pretty much just ignored it. And back in those days, it seemed it, it seemed odd to have a to, to have a declining currency and a declining bond market is really a recipe for trouble for equities. Um, though it didn't matter. Hedge fund manager Richard Pomboy had built a stellar track record in technology stocks in the great bull market, which had begun in 1982. But as the dollar continued to weaken and the bond market faded, he grew more nervous by the day with the increasing volatility in overseas markets unsettling him to the point that he began doing something that all the very best investors do, building a plan which would enable him to get out of the market should his worst fears be realized. I think the markets overseas had started to deteriorate uh, the day or two before, as I recall, and uh, and I, I can't tell you how nervous I was starting probably in July and August. So by the time we got into October... Uh, 
you know, I was really on the edge of my seat every day and looking for, you know, any signs of weakness. And uh, I, you know, I can't say specifically what it was, but I know that I think the night before, if I'm correct, markets were uh, weak in in Asia. And uh, it looked to me as I came in uh, toward the end of that week that the market was ready to crack. And I think the indications on the opening uh, in the U.S. were for a weak market. And, uh, I, you know, I, I was actually anxious to get out. And I was just being held in by the desire to not give up uh, whatever performance uh, my investors uh, should have, thought I should be making during the, during those final months. I uh, wanted to make sure that I could get out uh, on a moment's notice and was concerned about all the portfolio insurance and all that getting in the way and creating a downdraft that would uh, it caused me not to be able to get out. The source of a lot of Richard Pomboy's rising angst was something called portfolio insurance, a new hedging strategy which had become extremely popular in the run-up to 1987. But this rise in popularity threw up some fairly obvious potential problems. Here's Bill Fleckenstein. By spring, it was pretty clear that the concept of portfolio insurance had become a pretty big deal. It was uh, championed by Leland O'Brien Rubenstein was, were, the, were the major culprits. And I remember reading about this and thinking, people can't possibly think that this will work, could they? And of, and of course, a lot of them did. So what, you, what, 80, what the 87 crash was about was um, sort of stored up energy that was in the form of selling that wasn't released along the way because fewer people bothered to sell despite fundamentals that would have made them lighten up, i.e. a weak dollar and a weak bond market. They, and they didn't sell because they had portfolio insurance where the concept was, well, you pick your number, the market de- de- declines by X amount, and then uh, we will get you out. They were going to sell, you know, they would sell futures to hedge you out. And that all sounds wonderful on paper until you think about, well, if everyone tries or enough people try to do the same thing, who are you going to sell to? Which is, in fact, what happened. With portfolio insurance promising to sell index futures into any decline in the stock market to hedge risk, there was heightened complacency as too many investors trusted that this strategy would enable them to simply sidestep any decline. One man who wasn't complacent and who saw the obvious problems inherent in everybody believing they could all sell futures together when the need arose, was Richard Pomboy, and he decided to build his own lifeboat, one that didn't rely on portfolio insurance to save him in the event of a crash. Goldman Sachs was my prime broker, so I made a deal with them. My deal with Goldman Sachs was that I restructured my portfolio so that I had no more than either a quarter or maybe as much as a half of a day's trading in any individual security. No position could be bigger than that. And the, uh, the concept was that they would make, take me out on one phone call at any time. We actually rehearsed it a few times, and uh, th- that was, uh, looked like it would work. So with that agreement in place, Richard had what he thought was real protection for his investors. And on Friday, October 16th, the last trading day before the crash, his sixth sense told him it was time to take action. So on Friday, before the Black Monday, 
I actually came into the office wearing a crash helmet, which I had worn in racing my Porsche up in some Connecticut racetrack, and uh, declared that uh, this this was it. Uh, and uh, called Goldman Sachs before the opening, and said, "Okay, uh, I want I want out on the opening," and they put a bunch of traders on the line and uh, confirmed all the positions. And on the opening, on Friday, uh, we were out. One phone call, one broker, one very brave decision. But as Richard sat in his office watching the tape with what must have been a huge sense of relief, elsewhere things began to get squirrely. One man who could enjoy the madness, at least to a degree, was Greg Weldon. Really, the biggest day was Friday. You had the setup Friday. Uh, I remember I was actually, you know, had just started maybe six months prior to that trading from my house and for my own money. I had made a lot of money in the run-up in gold, left, you know, left the floor and uh, decided to manage my own money for the first time. And what was interesting about that day is we were short, coming in very heavily. So we caught the move. But the biggest kind of conundrum was where to get out. I mean, as best I can recall, the Dow opens down something like 190 points, which back then was a massive percentage decline already. And then started to rally. And I just remember, I'm just going to play the math. I'm a math guy. So if this thing goes more than 61% of the way back, then I'm going to bail. If not, I'll hold on to it. Well, we hold on to it. And, you know, at the end of that day, we had huge profits. One of the things that has stuck with me ever since then, on the flip side of all that, was the fact that the volatility increased so much that trying to kind of, you know, trade around the market uh, became so difficult that the slippage at the end of the day on some of these trades was huge and ate up a lot of the profits. So, you know, the lesson I kind of took away from that is, uh, you know, number one, money management's so important. And number two is kind of once you have, you know, had that kind of big profit in a trade like that, uh, maybe you don't want to keep chasing it, looking for another big score uh, in the same market. Maybe you need to sit back, kind of count your money as opposed to, you know, what we ended up, what I ended up doing, which was giving a lot of it back on the slippage and just the volatility and the fact these things were gapping 20, 40 points. And sometimes you had five to 10 full S&P points, you know, bid ask within 30 seconds, you know, was gone and you're paying 20 points higher or, you know, offering something 20 points lower. So the volatility that created was unprecedented for the time, obviously. And uh, that was the back end of all that was kind of what, uh, you know, was the lesson, for, uh, you know, in terms of trading uh, that I walked away with. Meanwhile, in Arizona, a young futures trader named Michael Oliver was developing a momentum-based technical analysis methodology that he hoped would warn him of impending corrections. What he'd seen in the week leading up to that Friday had been enough to convince him trouble was coming, but even seeing the warning signs didn't prepare him for the swings he would see that day. Our, our principle uh, is you can't break a trend unless there's something to break. Well, on the momentum chart, it was very clear in 87. And this is before MSA was founded. I was a futures broker in Scottsdale, Arizona at the time. And um, I saw this structure. So we had a warning of about a week. Sometimes you get more, but this was very little. Now, I didn't know at the time, and I'll admit this, and we, I learned a lot during that, that week, the week prior to and the, and the crash Monday that followed. Uh, that it was going to crash. We didn't know that. And, but I informed my customers. I got them short. We either shorted S&Ps or bought some S&P futures puts. And we weren't heavily aggressive. It wasn't you know, like we made tons, but we were, we were on the right side. And we, God knows we didn't know it would be a 35% drop. 
Well, I learned a lot that week. It really wore me out as a broker because I had trading power of attorney over my clients. So I was dealing with their money, too, and that puts pressure on you um, when it's not just your money. And the ups and downs that week were pretty tough. And on Friday, the uh, day before the crash, it would be the 16th, the market was down very, very hard. And like to the last hour, it was on its lows and turned around and ran all the way back up to its highs. I covered all the positions that we had. And by the end of that day, I covered them at a profit because we were short much earlier than that. Uh, By the end of the day, the market sold off and went right back to the lows again. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. I put the position, I just impulsively put the positions right back on. Then the next, that was good. I was glad I did that because on Monday we opened up. And at that point in time, uh, the Dow opened 200 points lower. Back then that was enormous. You know, that was like uh, probably a thousand point opening today. Uh, Opened 200 points lower. But at that point, I was so worn out. And again, this is psychology, you know, when it's applied to trading. I was so worn out as a broker and as also being a short in, in the positions that I covered on the opening, thinking, oh boy, finally captured it. Had I simply walked out the back door and taken a seven hour walk down the canal and come back by the end of the day, my gains would have been enormously greater than they were. But I still felt good because I captured it. The weekend arrived just in time to give the frazzled brains of Wall Street's finest a chance to regroup after what had been the most volatile week's trading since the days of the Wall Street crash in 1929. On the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, Arthur Cashin had survived the violent gyrations of the market, but he had an inkling that the worst was yet to come. Looking for clues as to what that may be, all eyes turned to the news media for any clue as to what was coming next, and what they found was hardly encouraging, both at home and abroad. Art takes up the story in his own inimitable way. Art Cashin, Director of Floor Operations at the New York Stock Exchange for UBS Financial Services. Not that it came out of nowhere. We had some inkling in the, in the days leading up to the Monday crash uh, that things were not going well. The market had topped out several weeks earlier. And uh, the week before, uh, things turned a bit dramatic. Uh, the Wednesday before the crash, the Dow was down 95 points, which was the greatest number of points in any drop in the history of the Dow. Things turned a little quieter on Thursday, and then on uh, Friday, which was an an option expiration day, uh, the market sold down, I believe, about 108 points, which then became the largest single-point drop in the history of the Dow. And uh, some of that came late in the day because of the expiration, uh, which meant that uh, specialists wound up buying positions that they could not lay off because it was so late in the day. The weekend was uh, filled with um, different pieces of noise. Um, Nancy Reagan was uh, 
sent to Bethesda Hospital for surgery uh, concerning uh, cancer. She was the president's uh, right hand, and uh, certainly if she was not around, he would be at the very least uh, very distracted or possibly ill-advised. So uh, that made Markets nervous. Um, at the same time, Treasury Secretary Baker had engaged in a uh, uh, loud verbal uh, confrontation with uh, uh, the Germans over the, uh, uh, the value of the Deutschmark and whether uh, uh, there were some unfair trade advantages being going on. So it sounded like a currency war could be uh, breaking out at any minute, which uh, made everyone further nervous and was the subject of any of the weekend talk shows. We were trying to stimulate our economy, <clears throat> and, and we were raising rates, which was causing the dollar to go up. So we were trying to get Germany to also stimulate their economy. And the key words for the 87 crash was when James Baker said, if Germany doesn't also stimulate its economy, uh, we would let the dollar slide. That's Victor Sperandio, known as Trader Vic back in 1987. Just days before the crash, Victor had predicted in a widely read Barron's article that a crash was not only likely, but imminent. And when he read Secretary Baker's words, he thought to himself, OK, this is it. Now, when you're the Secretary of the Treasury, as James Baker was, and you say you're going to let the, the dollar slide, you mean you're going to devalue. And he didn't say how much. That was the essence of the, the crash, the devaluation of the dollar. It's always the dollar, but, but in this case, the secretary, the treasurer, if some, somebody else had said it probably wouldn't have been as, as powerful, but if you were a foreign investor, uh, you didn't know what he meant by letting the dollar slide. Well, slide could be 10%, 20%, 30%. You just don't know. So it caused this massive amount of selling, and it was just, a, you know, it was just an avalanche, and, and it really started with uh, the wrong remark at the wrong time, the wrong comment at the wrong time by the wrong guy. The panic selling got an unlikely boost from Treasury Secretary James Baker, who tried to stop last week's bloodbath by suggesting over the weekend that the dollar needed to decline more. But that only opened old currency wounds, the same wounds the bond market has been licking for months now. But Baker's words weren't the only clear and present danger to markets. Geopolitical problems in the Middle East had Art Cash in circling the wagons ahead of the opening bell on Monday. And as 9.30 approached, the tension grew by the minute. And then finally on that morning, there were reports of hostility in uh, the area around Iran. We were rumored to be uh, firing on some of the platforms near the Straits of Hormuz, and that also got everybody excited. So uh, I had uh, made some phone calls and recommended that uh, key members of the staff try and get there early, already around the world equity markets and other places were down between 8 and 10%. So we knew that this was going to be uh, quite a day indeed. So I and one or two of my partners, having satisfied ourselves that everything was in good working order um, and we were fully staffed, went up to the Stock Exchange Luncheon Club uh, to grab a quick cup of coffee before the day started in earnest. Uh, by accident, we wound up at a table uh, 
not too far away from the table at which uh, John Phelan, the chairman of the stock exchange, was sitting with several of his aides. And the sense of anxiety was added to by noticing that every five minutes or so, uh, a separate aide to Phelan came running in, whispered in his ear. He uh, quickly and quietly consulted with some of the people around him. And um, there were... (laughs) There were no smiles on any of the faces, so uh, it was pretty evident that they were assuming we were going to have a tough day, too. So at any rate, uh, having finished the coffee, uh, we decided to head to the floor to make sure we were uh, ready when things got started. I went up. uh, Phelan and I were fairly friendly. I went up to his table, and I put my right arm across my chest and gave him the... uh, Gladiators salute, moratori te salutamus esse. We who are about to die salute you. John had had enough Latin that he understood what I was saying, and he just solemnly nodded his head and said, see you on the floor. When you work on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, you know that no matter what's going on in the world, no matter how uncertain you are about what's about to happen, the one thing you can count on is that the bell will ring at 9.30 and trading will begin. In quiet markets or crashes, once the bell sounds, it's every man for himself. And in that respect, October 19th, 1987 was no different, except for the sheer level of chaos unleashed by the ringing of that bell. From the get-go, the order flow was heavy, uh, and to the sell side, uh, some... uh, Market moves look slightly disproportionate. Some of the uh, uh, specialists avail themselves of uh, a procedure we had here at the time of being able to indicate stocks. If uh, XYZ had closed at 55 and you thought it was going to open down around 40, uh, that's an awfully big surprise to people. So to get them to understand what was going on, you might put an indication up of 38.42 and uh, let that rest there for a couple of minutes before trading would begin so that people in Iowa and elsewhere would uh, get get to know that things were going to be trading at those prices. In the meantime, uh, in Chicago, uh, they didn't have an ability to uh, halt or delay individual stocks, so they had to trade the entire index. So that opened immediately, and it opened down uh, in a sharp fashion, and that set up a strange uh, kind of arbitrage opportunity in which uh, the Dow, which had closed around, uh, I think around 2,200 or or somewhere, uh, would be trading at 2,100 in uh, New York, and uh, the equivalent uh, in Chicago would be trading at 2,000 or below. So uh, that created in people's minds the impression that, gee, I want to sell them in New York because I can possibly get a better price. That impression led to more and more selling, not just the people who were trading in Chicago, but others who decided that uh, I want to sell in New York to get that opportunity. Meanwhile, in Chicago, a young corporate financier, Michael Lewitt, who would go on to write The Credit Strategist, was just four months into his career and trying to figure out what the hell was going on. 
Well, I, I remember the day like many people very well. Um, I had just started at Drexel uh, in the corporate finance department in late June. So it was just three or so months, June, July, August. You know, so like, I don't know, three or four months before. Um, and so I, you know, I was still figuring out how to turn on the computer. And they decided for some reason that still escapes me that I would be a good guy to go out and give speeches. Uh, among other things, probably because they figured out I had no clue about what else to do. So uh, they had sent me that day to Chicago to give a speech. And um, I um, I gave a speech and no one was paying attention to me, of course, because they were watching the market plunge. And uh, you know, I gave my speech and came back. And by the time I got back, the market had plunged uh, all those points, which at the at the time, you know, we've seen plunges since then, but it was catastrophic. And I was completely convinced that um, I uh, my career was over because I thought the world was coming to an end. One man who wasn't confused was Art Cashin. However, not everybody was as clear-headed as Art. Now, the key thing that would uh, exacerbate what happened for the balance of the day was that what you really had here uh, were two parallel hide- highways. Um, with vastly different rules. And uh, yet at the same time, because of uh, the ability uh, to sell one versus the other, the equivalent of those highways with the separate and very different rules uh, was that they had interchanges. So that at any given time, somebody who had some difficulty selling in Chicago would zip onto the highway in New York at a completely different speed and try and get things done. And that and that kind of, if you would, zigging and zagging back and forth that never allowed the markets to get uh, uh, really stable. So we opened with a, with a gap down in both places. Um, they were um, continuing to sell. Uh, the um, chairman of the SEC was relatively new. He had uh, recently been appointed. He was out giving a speech at a hotel in uh, Washington. And on his uh, way out and heading back to the SEC, um, he was asked uh, about the market, and the topic of a possible trading halt came up. And he seemed to hint that under certain circumstances, the market uh, could have uh, a halt. And that kind of added to the sense of panic because, uh, number one, you don't want to go in, even though things look cheap, you don't want to rush in and buy them if they're thinking of halting trading because then you can't get out. The rally can never start. So that, in its own way, helped to dissuade buyers and uh, made the sellers even more nervous. And they uh, they pushed to um, uh, sell. From the standpoint of uh, the brokers, as we moved into the afternoon, and the selling remained relentless, and, and we began trading at prices that you almost felt you were in a uh, a movie dream sequence. I mean, you knew the price you were trading at, but you couldn't actually believe it was real. You didn't think, "I can't, I can't be selling this stock at this price, can I?" And how is that actually possible? On the West Coast. It was 6.30 a.m., and in Bellevue, Washington, a young man called David Hay stared at his quote screens, watching the unthinkable happen. 
Uh, I've been in the business at that juncture about eight years, so it's not exactly a rookie, but you know, certainly not a, an old-time veteran either. But I do remember looking at just watching IBM literally melting away in minutes and going from 130 to 120 to 110 to 100. And for a while, we thought there was something wrong with our machines. So you didn't really have the connectivity by any means that you have today. But, you know, nonetheless, you know, panic was just ripping through the financial markets. Uh, we'd never encounter anything like it. It was like, you know, flashback to 1929. Meanwhile, on the floor of the exchange, the selling pressure continued to dumbfound traders as it ratcheted even higher. The order flow continued to race in faster and faster. Um, and as we pushed on, there were a couple of small pauses at, uh, at some Negligible rally attempts, but overall the pressure was tremendous. Uh, and by the end of the day, the tape was running late because uh, we can trade faster than the human eye can read. So if they printed the sales as fast as they were occurring, um, the the, uh, the tape would be a blur. Nobody could recognize it. So what they did was... They printed them at the maximum speed that the human eye could recognize it, which meant that it theoretically fell behind in time. Prices you were looking at had occurred an hour ago. And and uh, to try and avoid the total panic that that might bring, uh, every once in a while they would put up what they call flash prices. And they were uh, still somewhat out of sequence, but far more recent and they told people uh, pretty much what was going on uh, in a timely fashion. And, and you could see from the flash prices being so much lower uh, that uh, that prices were nearly in free fall, that it was as if a trap door had occurred. Um, and that continued uh, in, in uh, tremendous volume with the tape running late. And ultimately, by the end of the day, uh, we were down 508 points in the Dow, 22%, the worst day in the history of the Dow Jones and the New York Stock Exchange. When trading was halted at the normal time, everybody looked around at each other, wondering would they still be here tomorrow or the next day if, if somebody had made an error in trading, if, if something came back to haunt you. Um, it could be... Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So uh, while that was one of the most dramatic days of that period, and in my 50-some-odd-year career here at Wall Street on the floor, it was the next day that was the most dramatic. It was as if the wheels might, in fact, come off the locomotives. Incredibly, with traders reeling from a 22% decline in the Dow, a one-day move the likes of which has never happened before or since, and which took the losses of the index to 35% in a week. As the following day dawned, with many predicting the inevitable bounce, the market did what the market always does, set out to fool the maximum number of people possible. And what happened was the market rebounded on the opening, as you would expect after a 22% one-day sell-off. But after a while, prices began to roll over, and they moved lower. And when the Dow went into negative territory, you could hear an audible gasp here on the floor. But this rolling over of the index into negative territory had its roots in activities not taking place on the floor of the exchange, but behind the scenes. And what I discovered after a 
several minutes was that what had happened was a a kind of fluke of the business. For months before, many of the uh, major banks in the Wall Street area had gone around soliciting uh, the accounts of uh, the specialists and market makers here and over the counter uh, to provide them with their lines of credit so that they could basically borrow money to make the markets that they were making. And uh, as human nature would have it, when when the uh, senior management of those banks came in the next day and saw that the markets had dropped 22%, they immediately put themselves in a position to supersede the guy who normally ran that business, the guy who understood that business, the guy who understood how a specialist worked. And instead, they were replaced by the chairman of the bank or the vice chairman, who then proceeded to call in the specialist and tell them that they were shutting down their lines of credit. Because uh, while we know that you're obligated to stand up for what you bought yesterday, we're not so sure that the people that you sold to will stand up for what they bought. So we can't put the uh, the bank and its clients and, and its shareholders at risk. So we're shutting down your line of credit. So one after another, the specialists came to the floor. I was a governor at the time, and they came to me and said, you're going to have to halt trading in some, several of my stocks because they've just closed my line of credit, and I don't have enough cash to make a market. I think I personally shut down 10 of the 30 Dow stocks, and uh, in the meantime, they went up to uh, Chairman Phelan's office. He started calling around to the banks, explaining to them that they misunderstood how things were going, that they had to reopen the lines of credit, or the the whole financial system might come crashing to a halt. Uh, they wouldn't listen to him. Uh, he then reached out for um, Alan Greenspan, who had just been appointed chairman of the uh, Fed. Greenspan had accepted the role of chairman of the Federal Reserve just a few months earlier and had yet to become the maestro. David Hay recalls what happened next. On that day, Alan Greenspan got on a plane from Washington to Dallas and, you know, didn't even have, you know, any connectivity in the air uh, at that time, of course. And he lands and he immediately calls his office and asks what the stock market is doing. There were a lot of rumors that there were massive sell orders from the previous Friday that had not been filled. So he was very worried. You know, we were all very concerned over that weekend. And he landed and they told him the market was down 508. And he heaved a big sigh of relief, thinking they meant 5.08. When he found out it was 508 points, he immediately got on the plane and flew back to Washington. And I think that's you know pretty interesting to think about, because really that was the birth of the Greenspan put, the first time the Fed reacted to the stock price collapse and, of course, just flooded the system with liquidity to, to stop the, the bleeding and, and eventually create a rally. So the Greenspan put was born something which we couldn't have imagined back then would pave the way for quantitative easing and the trillions of dollars of stimulus still being applied by central banks of today. But behind the scenes at the New York Stock Exchange, frantic moves were being made to reopen the specialist credit lines so the market could function properly. Jerry Corrigan, who was the president of the New York Fed, he quickly understood what the problem was. He began calling around to the banks, telling them that they needed to reopen the lines of credit uh, perversely, they, I am told, even gave him a hard time saying they had to think of their shareholders and, and their customers. 
and he he said to them something like, I imagine, uh, listen, do you remember who I said I was? I'm the president of the New York Fed. I regulate you guys, okay? Uh, open those accounts. And uh, they were still reluctant, and I believe he had to tell them that the Fed would offer some protection for, from losses if they reopened the accounts. So the accounts were reopened. The specialists and the market makers over the counter were informed that their accounts were reopened. They came back down to me. We reopened the stocks we had closed, and the Dow rallied back into plus territory. And the American world of finance came that close to death, but it was saved. Yes, the American financial system came that close to the precipice. Not for the first time, nor likely the last, as when people panic, things can unravel remarkably quickly, as we saw again in 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst, and of course in 2008. But as the dust settled, it quickly became apparent just how close to the edge markets had been, particularly thanks to the increased volatility caused by portfolio insurance trades, which had exacerbated the swings in both directions, to the point where even the men who had devised the strategy must have wondered what they'd unleashed. There's um, uh, an apocryphal story that one of the principals went in to their trader and said, have you sold enough futures for our, the, the people that we're handling here? And he said, I, I can't. I'm afraid if I sell what I need to sell, the market will go to zero. And uh, uh, whoever the principal was said, and God, for God's sake, man, don't do that. So they, they, they may have actually stepped back from where it was. But it was it was a, a strange day, and uh, one you know one prideful thing to me was uh, at the end of the week, uh, President Reagan sent a congratulatory letter to the stock exchange and to the members and specialists for um, standing up and and not shutting the market down and making the markets and coming through and lasting out the week and keeping the American finance alive. That was a pretty prideful moment. The lessons learned by everyone involved in financial markets around the world on Black Monday have undoubtedly stayed with them during the intervening three decades. And even though events like this are never exactly the same, they offer the kind of on-the-job education that, hopefully, not only prepares those of us who experienced them firsthand to navigate the next one a little better, but they give anyone who takes the time to study history a chance to avoid making the same mistakes as those who went before them. Today, well, while history never repeats, it certainly rhymes is David Hay. You had that interplay between the program trading and the portfolio insurance, you know, back 30 years ago. And it was kind of this belief that these, among the institutions that were playing that game, that they had their debt downside protection in place. And instead, of course, it just fed on itself when markets started plunging. I think today you probably have a little bit of a parallel there, maybe more than a little bit, with the VIX and the massive short position on the volatility index and the volatility ETFs. And then what the institutions use to control their risk, supposedly the value at risk, the VAR. And I think the VIX and the VAR could have kind of a synergistic uh, aspect similar to program trading and portfolio insurance so that if we get VIX, the volatility spiking materially, and it's certainly due to do that, then all of a sudden the, the algos and the other computer programs that the big institutions use to tell them how much risk they can take on will completely flip the other way. And they'll be told they need to sell to reduce risk. And and that's when you could have, in my opinion, kind of the, the same type of chain reaction that you had 30 years ago. 
Bill Fleckenstein is another who points to the lessons of portfolio insurance in the context of today. Had it not been for portfolio insurance, in my opinion, there never would have been a crash because the market wouldn't have gotten up to where it did. It would have gone down as it normally might have in those events and it would have sorted itself out. So I think the, the lesson looking back is that, that if you see a structure in a market where everyone is on the same side of the boat or plans to act differently because of something that might then put everyone on the same side of the boat, then you have to be worried about it. Um, if you look at today's environment, there's a lot of brittleness caused by a variation of the same theme, um, whether it's people selling naked calls, uh, uh, the VIX, uh, passive investing. All of those things are going to conspire at some point to behave like portfolio insurance. The rise of passive investing is something Victor Sperandio also sees as a potential source of trouble. And whichever way you cut it, the specter of portfolio insurance looms large. In this case, as we had portfolio insurance at the time, today the, the investing in, in, in ETFs, passive ETFs, what you're going to see is deep discounts in those ETFs. So you're going to see people who want to sell an ETF and the par value might be 10 and they'll be trading at nine. And it's going to be, it will be devastating that the central banks have overdone it. They have taken the magic wand and they have abused it. So you're set up today and you just need that one, that one stroke. But let me just say the aggravation of the decline in this case will not be portfolio insurance. It'll be all this passive investing in, in, in stock-like ETFs, and that will cause the waterfall because there'll be no buyers. There's no specialist there to, to buy them at, at a reasonable bid. So there'll be a deep discount, and, and people will be arbing those. So they'll be buying deep discount ETFs, and they'll be selling S&P futures. And then if they can't get the S&P futures, they'll sell the top OEX 100. And if they can't get those off, they'll sell the, the, the fangs. You know, it, you can do it in many different ways. And they, the QQQs, there's so many different ways to arb these things. But the, the retail will be selling at the market. So it'll be, it'll be a very harmful day or days when this occurs. Michael Oliver's momentum indicators suggest that, while a correction could happen, a more sanguine approach is warranted, at least for the time being. I think it's more likely you're going to get a hard wobble, the kind that you know, most investors would say, oh boy, buying opportunity, you know, 5%, 6%, something like that. Various indexes might go more, like NASDAQ might drop more than the S&P. But I don't see a top now as being perceived as lethal. I think if we're going to get something that turns into a bear, it'll become more evident next year based on breaking of annual momentum trend structures, which aren't close enough to the current market to be able to signal that right now. But next year they will be. Uh, and it wouldn't take but like a, a good 5% gut kick right now in, in the major U.S. indexes or even the European or Japanese to put them in position so that in 2018 they, they could get whacked for real. But what about the man who had the guts to sell everything in his portfolio literally moments before the crash began in earnest? Here's Richard Pomboy's take on where we stand today. The environment, the, the macro environment is much, much worse today, in my opinion, with all the debt and the unfunded pension liabilities 
and uh, the demographics of, you know, in 1987, uh, we didn't have this many people reti- uh, retiring and all that. So the demographics today are worse. The debt is uh, many, many times worse. Uh, and the, the euphoria is the same. Those two Ps, positivity and pension funds, have a lot of market veterans nervous. Here's Victor Sprandio and Michael Lewitt. In this case, where I would look is not the banks, it's, it's the state pension funds. The primary, the primary villain here would probably be Illinois. When you, in other words, what will fail that will cause the snowball? The, the potential failure is the inability of a pension plan to pay off. But if, if, if a pension plan of a major state, New Jersey, would be a potential victim, and so, so would Illinois, perhaps California, and even perhaps New York. But it, it's going to come, the, the Lehman Brothers will be a pension plan. People have never been more positive that the market's going to go up. And to me, that is the most dangerous time to be long the market. And that's what we learned in 1987. Now, the market ended up resuming its upward climb after that crash. But if you are not positioned properly, if you're leveraged, if you're in things that are not going to come back, you're not going to live to fight another day. And so one of the important lessons I learned from that and from subsequently spending a couple of decades in the, in the high-yield bond market is that uh, you need to have what would also not seem to let cause um, a robust portfolio that can survive those kinds of um, downdrafts because they can happen and they can wipe you out. Um, even if in the long term the markets do go up, it doesn't matter. If you're not positioned properly, you're going to get wiped out. And so you can never count on, uh, count on tomorrow. I mean, it's a good lesson about uh, life as well as markets. Lessons about markets and life are all important to learn, and one man whose experiences during October of 1987 have shaped the way he has invested ever since is David Hay. David's taken steps to mitigate similar risks he sees in today's markets and is looking for echoes of what he saw trigger the 87 crash. A lot of the current market participants were not in the business back then, and it's one thing to read about an event, uh, even extensively, and another thing to actually live through it. And to see that kind of absolute price evaporation before your own eyes, our view has been for the last few years that you're better off to give up kind of the, the, the last few percentages, which maybe has become more than a few percentages of the terminal bull market, uh, rather than, you know, try to get too cute. So I think you just have to, you know, like systematically de-risk. And that's kind of what we've been doing the last two or three years with the caveat that, as you know, there's been some very serious shakeouts. Uh, I mean, obviously, 2015 was a little rough for the market itself at times. Uh, small caps at one point were down 27%. Energy got absolutely nuked, you know, cut in half. So I think to the point of what would set things off, I mean, if you think back to 87, it was those rapidly rising uh, treasury yields. Interestingly, the yield curve back then actually steepened because treasuries were moving up in yield faster than corporates were. This time, you don't have that. You have uh, so far, just kind of a mild increase in treasury yields, but what you do have is an increasingly flat yield curve, and I think that's something to really watch, is that we go into 2018, uh, we're probably going to see a combination of a very flat, possibly even inverted U.S. yield curve, combined with QEs being cut off around the world, 
other central banks actually raising rates, which is happening. So you could have, I think you will have a very different liquidity environment next year. And I think that's something that, you know, a prudent investor really needs to, to watch very closely. Bill Fleckenstein fears that although the Greenspan put has changed the way markets operate and made it harder to capture downside moves from the short side, the next big market fall will eventually be magnified by the rescue attempts of central bankers over the last 30 years. The takeaway is has not been, okay, if we see markets that exhibit a brittleness or are, 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 are behaving in a way partially because they think that they don't have to worry about selling or, or might lead to sell at the same time, we need to be worried. That's not the lesson that was been taken away. The lesson that's been taken away is you got to buy the damn dip. If we get to a situation where the bond market and the dollar, or if it's yen and the yen and the J, and JGBs start to decline at the same time, then I think you have to be on red alert, you know, because then we could have a crash again because the structure of the market that we have today is is very crash prone. So I think I think that another crash is almost a certainty, but I don't know when. And of course, since the Fed and the other central banks sponsored the present mania, they're going to ride to the rescue. So the dynamic's totally different. I mean, remember, this is not a religion. This is about making money. And um, um, I don't in order to be able to make money on the short side, I have, you have to be able to manage your risk. And in order to be able to manage your risk, you need, some, you need certain things that will allow you to be successful at that. Well, right now, bad news doesn't even matter. So being short is really futile. Now, that could change next week. But my plan is to wait until I see something different and have some of these variables change in a way that I could figure out how to manage the risk of being short. I don't feel like it's as important to catch the first piece of this because the bigger trade is going to be when the, the authorities ride to the rescue and and we see how markets view the the next version of QE. Will they say, in my opinion, accurately, look, this doesn't work. That would be a different outcome than if everyone says, okay, we'll believe you. Let's, let's go for another ride. So you really need to see that. And, and, and I, for, I, we could easily be down 22% a day. If they... If they put on circuit breakers without coming with massive QE, that would, that would foment panic. If the market continues on its present course, we, we could have, a, we could have a, a rally into the end of the year, and that would set the stage for 18. So I'd be looking at how the early part of 18 goes, reminiscent of how the market peaked out in 1989 in Tokyo, right in advance of the, of the liberalization of the postal system savings account. It's perverse that that topped the market. You know, so... I don't know exactly what it's going to take, but once it starts, I don't have to worry about getting out of stocks that I'm in because I'm not in stocks, and the things I'm more interested in are are gold-related. I believe that those things would sniff out that sort of um, environment, and, and, and it would be bullish, but... So, but, but in terms of, so I don't, I'm not worried about playing defense into the next crunch. I'm worried about, I'm I'm planning on playing offense, but I'm going to wait until I see signs that it's, that's, it's time to act. And the other thing is, since we know that the central banks have sponsored this, trying to get asset prices to lift the economy, you know that they're going to ride to the rescue. In the past, it wasn't always so clear that they would for sure ride to the rescue. Ultimately, they, ultimately they did. 
but they haven't they hadn't really sponsored a market the way they've sponsored the bond market and by extension the stock market this time around. So they are going to feel the, the need to act. But to Greg Weldon, the similarities to 1987 are not only everywhere, but are almost freakish in how they resemble that year. To Greg, if you want to try and see the next crash coming, you need to look at two key things, bond markets and central bankers. If you take the period from 85 to 87 and then compare it to kind of 2015 to where we are now, I mean, the, 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 the similarities are amazing. For example, CPI from, uh, from the period of you know, 86 to 87 when it you know, hit four and a half, it had come from around two, it was about a 250 basis point rise. Okay, well, CPI went from zero to 280 high in February. Very similar move. All right, crude oil then went from 975 to $23, about 130% increase. If you go back to the period when you just bottomed in crude in, I guess it was 2015, you know, you've gone from 26 to a recent high of 55. The, the percent change is around 115%. It's almost identical. Look at, the, look at the dollar. I mean, the dollar is really interesting, too. I mean, the dollar fell its you know, 27% uh, back from 85 to 87. It's, it's about halfway there now, and I think that's kind of tells us we're still a little early if this is kind of going to work out similarly. And I think the risks may be even greater here than they were in 87. Uh, but if you take the bond market, okay, another good example. Uh, the bond yield was up roughly 50%, the 10-year bond yield. Uh, from its low to its high from, you know, actually 86 to 1987. Uh, the bond yield now, if you take the 10-year, is up 75% from its low, around 130 to around 230. But probably the most striking similarity is really good to the stock market. Uh, the, the, the gain in the stock market now from 2016 to 2016 low is 40%. The gain in the stock market in 1986 to the peak in 87, 49%. Very close. If you take the period from the Reagan election to 87, roughly five, six years, the gain was 240% altogether. Since 2009, the S&P is up 280%. Those numbers are very similar across the board. The dollar is the only one that's really off, and the direction is still the same. So to me, when you tie that in with some of the macro dynamics we see here, bond yields were the catalyst then, to me, bond yields will be the catalyst now, and the setup is very similar. And so, you know, all eyes on the Fed, all eyes on what they do, all eyes on the bond market, you know as well as I do. Sovereign debt is something that people have swept under the rug as if it's been fixed. It isn't fixed. Uh, we know that. I mean, you know, most of the smart people out there listening understand this. $20 trillion, average maturity less than six years, with a coupon yield on average of around 2%. The five-year note is pushing 2% here. And above that, you exponentially increase the cost of refunding your, your debt. Uh, when you look at the interest payments on the debt, it's almost at a record high here, despite the fact that interest rates are still, you know, at least you know, in the short end, uh, in, in the official Fed funds rate and even deposit rates, close, still close to record lows. It's the same is true for the consumer, who's already showing signs of some retrenchment and erosion. So I see a lot of similarities in the, in the setup of the markets, and I see even more risk here in terms of kind of the macro fundamentals behind it. And then you tie in this whole expectations around tax reform and around fiscal spending. And yeah, guess what? The global economy is doing really well right now, but the risk to me is in the U.S. The risk is the bond market, and that is very similar to what it was in uh, August of uh, 1987.
Yeah, October 1987 just seems like yesterday to me. Uh, you know, I had my own experiences and I was a young trader and and just got completely blindsided by the whole thing. And it really left a mark on me for the for the rest of my career and it taught me at a very early stage what can happen. You know, these these bad events can happen and do happen and I think for me going through that in such a formative stage of my career was was incredibly valuable to me. You know, Grant, it's crazy because I knew almost nothing about uh, the 1987 crash until we started researching this. It's, in my mind, as a 30-odd-something-year-old, everything's about 2008. You know, it seems that everyone's memory stops at the last big thing. Well, it was a, 87 was a very different a very different type of event, but obviously with a very similar outcome. And I think that's that's the important thing to take away from this. No matter how it happens, these big corrections in markets, they're inevitable at some point. Uh, and I think our guests this week have given people a lot of food for thought, a lot of things to watch out for, and shared some remarkable stories from what really was a moment in time. Well, sadly, that concludes another episode of Adventures in Finance. Before we leave you, you guessed it, the good old legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops as always, and please do trade responsibly. Now, you can't read anything about the world of finance without a reference to blockchain and Bitcoin these days. But where did the blockchain start? How did it grow? What did it mean then, and what does it mean for us now? Next week, we'll find out when we revisit the origins of Bitcoin and the blockchain. Again, don't forget to visit realvision.com slash edgeofthecliff to download uh, the Edge of the Cliff uh, full chart pack. And if you have an interesting question about this week's show, or anything else for that matter, then we would obviously love to hear that. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, then you can subscribe to us on iTunes and James, tell them about the reviews. Yeah, leave a review. We love reviews. Thanks for that, James. <laughs> As always. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then do follow us on Twitter, at Real Vision. Uh, you'll also find us if you scour the dark web of Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. And if you're so inclined, you can follow me on Twitter, at TTMYGH. And if you want to see me beat Grant with followers, please... Add me at AIF James. Yes, tell all your friends with a big disclaimer. That's it from us. We will see you back here next week. Thanks for listening. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com